Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon Belden Castingway, director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Jennifer Tour Chase, distinguished scientist and managing director of Microsoft Research New England and Microsoft Research New York, both of which she co-founded. Jennifer, welcome to Careers by Design. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. To start out, can you tell me a little bit about those operations and what your specific job responsibilities are? So these are research labs, um, interdisciplinary research labs for Microsoft. Uh, we do a lot of fundamental research. If any of you have heard of the old Bell Labs, it's oh, sure. like that. So um, we do research um, on the boundary of a lot of fields. So we have math and physics, which is kind of where I came from, uh, theoretical computer science and other kinds of computer science, uh, uh, machine learning, um, vision, uh, cryptography. We also have the social sciences, so um, economics, uh, social media, which has people in comms and anthropology and sociology, and computational biology. So we're really looking at the interface of the kind of um, more mathematical sciences with the social sciences and the biological sciences. And uh, so these are two separate research labs. And sometimes our stuff feeds into Microsoft products. And usually it also feeds into the academic, um, uh, uh, into the academic community. So let's go a bit of back in time. Were there early signs of your ultimate career path? Did you enjoy math and science from a young age? Uh, I definitely enjoyed math and science from a young age. Uh, I, very strangely, because my mother, though very bright, cannot add fractions. <laughs> uh, but when I was about four years old, um, there were some neighbors next door that used to give us candy. And I would hear them talking about math problems at their kitchen table. And uh, I started asking for math problems at the age of four or five. So uh, I, I, there, there was definitely some attraction there. And they started to give me math problems. So, uh, so I've always been very mathematical, and I've always liked science. So uh, yeah, from a very young age, that's what I wanted to do. But Actually, I, I didn't think you could have a profession doing math, so um, so I thought that I wanted to be a doctor because uh, that was a kind of good profession doing science. And I didn't come from an academic family, so I thought you needed a profession, like you had to be a doctor or a lawyer or something. Why did you decide to pursue a liberal arts education? What was your path to Wesleyan? I grew up in, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. I got to Wesleyan in 74, so the world was very open. Um, uh, one of the things I liked about Wesleyan is that, this is no longer true, but there were no distribution requirements. So, you know, I thought I could do whatever I wanted. Um, and... You know, I, I just knew that there were people who were interested in, in many different things. I in, in the end, I didn't do the conventional liberal arts education 
because there were um, no distribution uh, no distribution requirements, um, I only took two non-science or math classes, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I took more math and science classes than I would have had I gone to MIT. Uh, but nevertheless, um, the liberal arts vibe of the school uh, permeated everything. And so, um, although my, my advisors who would sign my course card every year and warn me that I was going to be illiterate, <laughs> if I didn't take uh, more English and history and political science, um, I, I think would not be unhappy with my degree of literacy nor would they be worried that I was embarrassing Wesleyan because I think enough of it permeated and, you know, I, I, I'm pretty well read. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you started out thinking pre-med. When did that change? So, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I had taken a physics class in high school, actually at a local college, which I really didn't like because it was all memorization. And so I thought I, I need to take a year of physics for um, for med school as a pre-med requirement, right. but I don't want to ruin an entire year taking physics, so I'm going to go take it over a summer. So the summer after my freshman year at Wesleyan, when I took a lot of pre-med classes, I took organic chemistry and biology and, you know, standard pre-med type classes, um, I, I took physics at Harvard, at, at a summer school at Harvard, and fell in love with it, and came back to Wesleyan and said, okay, I'm, I thought I was still going to go to med school, but, um, but I thought, okay, I'll, um, I'll start taking some physics classes as well as pre-med classes, and maybe I can be a physics major and a biology major, and then I just started taking more and more physics classes and maybe around my junior year I started to think maybe I won't even go to med school <laughs> okay. you know maybe I'll just go to physics grad school um finally many many years later I am doing research in biology including human biology but many many years later <laughs> right right what sorts of things were you involved in while you were at Wesleyan did you leave the lab or was that your main focus while you were here well, you know, I I, um, I took a lot of different kinds of science classes. So took a lot of math classes. I was like one course shy of a math major. Took a lot of chem classes. I was one course shy of a chem major. Took a lot of physics and a lot of biology. Um, I did some research, uh, which was uh, uh, theoretical research. Um, for, um, for an experimental physicist, but you had to work out some theory for that. I did that, I think, in my junior or senior year. In my sophomore year, I worked in a cell biology lab. So I was, I was someone they were worried was becoming very one-dimensional. Right. <laughs> um, I, I had explored a lot of other things when I was in high school. I went to a free school, and I had read a lot of, you know, Supreme Court cases and a lot of other things. So I did have more of this liberal arts background coming into Wesleyan. And then when I got to Wesleyan, I just fell in love with all these different sciences. So it's not a typical Wesleyan experience, um, right. but it was my experience. 
So once you had decided, I'm not going to go to medical school, I'm going to continue with graduate school, how did you go about choosing a graduate program? Well, I, my junior year, um, right after my junior year in the summer, I went and I visited some graduate programs. I talked to a lot of people. I wanted to do mathematical physics, which is um, a, a pretty uh, an unusual field, a field without a lot of jobs. In, in particular, and so there were a few places that were very good in that, but also I had a two-body problem because my husband, who is also a Wesleyan student, and I were both applying to grad school, and programs in physics were rather small, so we actually ended up applying, I think, to nine or ten graduate schools, um, and I heard that Princeton was very theoretical and mathematical, which I liked, so of the offers we got, we, we got a lot of offers. Um, we we uh, we chose Princeton, and there had been a faculty member um, at Wesleyan who had gone to Princeton, I don't know, 25 years earlier or something, and so you know he spoke very fondly of it. Tell me a bit, preferably in layman's terms, if that's possible, about your graduate work and how it led to your postdoctoral fellowships. So um, I did graduate work in mathematical physics. Um, I, I did several different problems. Um, so uh, one, so I really loved, um, I really loved statistical physics, um, which is it's kind of physics about matter, about states of matter, but done on a microscopic level. You can do it kind of on a macroscopic level and you can just talk about the properties of, um, of various materials or you can talk about the individual constituents that make up that material and how when you get very large numbers of them, you then start to get this large scale kind, um, uh, kind of behavior. And so, um, so I, I worked on pretty mathematical models and questions. So um, one of the things that I worked on was phase transitions. So we all know phase transitions with, you know, uh, water freezes or water boils. Um, but there are other systems which are um, more complex systems. Well, water is actually pretty complex. but which sound more complex, which also undergo phase transitions, and then there are um, and then there are idealized mathematical models, which undergo phase transitions. And sometimes it's nice to look at these idealized models because they strip away all the other details, and you really see the essence of what's going on. So I think very visually. So I like to think of things in visual terms and I like to and I and I think of things in terms of art which is something that I had always loved so you can think of these as you know very um, uh, uh, minimalistic drawings which somehow nevertheless convey some rich information to you mm -hmm. and so that's the kind of thing that I worked on I mean that would be the the artistic, um, the artistic analogy would be a very minimalist drawing, which nevertheless um, gets across some 
very profound truths. And it's kind of surprising that something so minimalistic can produce that kind of behavior. So you can see phase transitions with something very minimalistic, which you can actually then go in and solve mathematically completely. So that's the kind of thing that I worked on. I mean, I worked on things which involved surfaces. So I would have all these pictures of surfaces on my board and non-orientable surfaces. So they'd have these weird tubes going among them. In, so this is what I say also that it's kind of visual. And they'd have topological phase transitions and all these things. So I, I also, um, you know, I loved poetry. Um, and then I loved this kind of um, math and physics, which was like a, a poetry analog, okay? It was less specific than or less detailed than prose. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of what what the analogy is. I mean, I could go into details of the mathematics, but, you know, probably some of your listeners would just run off immediately. And I think <laughs> that's the important thing, okay? I think the important thing is that how much can I strip away from a model and still get these fundamental truths out of it? So you understand what's really important in producing that effect. And it's often much less than you think it would be just like with a drawing. It could be much less than you think it would be if you looked at a photograph. Right, right. So I understand that you completed postdoctoral work at both Harvard and Cornell. Uh, I myself have worked as a career counselor with a lot of both early and mid-career scientists before I got to Wesleyan. And I'm curious to hear about what your transition was like to UCLA, which I understand was your first faculty appointment. How did you how did you find that opportunity? Let me just back up a moment and say that the jobs at Harvard and Cornell were bizarre. I didn't even apply for either of them. Okay, So that's just something that people should realize if they're looking for careers. I happen to be hanging around Harvard because my ex-husband's grandfather was dying, so I wanted we wanted to be up in Cambridge, you know, for the last few weeks of his life. Gave a talk at Harvard in May, and somebody at Harvard said, oh, you seem like you're about to finish your graduate career. This seems like enough for a thesis for me. Why don't you go down and tell people at Princeton you're finished and come and be a postdoc at Harvard in the huh. fall? I was like, oh, that sounds like a great idea <laughs> that I don't have to apply for a job. Right. Um, so I did that. And then, you know, a year and a half into that, I was up at Cornell giving another talk um, in the math department. And I went and visited a friend from graduate school in the physics department who was a young professor. And at 10 o'clock at night, we ran into a senior professor in the elevator and ended up talking for about an hour. And a week later, he called and he said, how would you like a postdoc at Cornell? <laughs> so, you know, that was maybe again in May. Okay. And so I went to Cornell in July or August. Um, so, you know, it, it's always, since you're a career counselor, <laughs> um, you know, it's not always the, um, the standard channels. Right, get right. You where you want to go and I think it's really important it's really important to be open to that and to always be talking about what you're passionate about because people recognize that and now I have hired hundreds of people over the years and I too am always looking for somebody who's 
story, whose way they talk about their work or their interests is deeply engaging. Um, and you know, I, I and then sometimes I'll go after students who are still in grad school and say, "Hey, can you try to finish really quickly and come do a postdoc with me or something?" So I think it's it's important to be open to those things. So now the transition to UCLA. Um, so uh, when I got to UCLA, I mean, it was kind of nice. I was never an assistant professor. I immediately got tenure um, four years out of grad school because I had done so much work <laughs> in my two postdocs as all my colleagues who were doing assistant professorships were doing work teaching classes. So that was another unconventional career move. I, postpon I postponed um, trying to apply for a faculty job, uh, which people advised me against, um, and I nevertheless did it. <laughs> and it ended up working out really well because I had you know, written 25 papers three and a half years out of grad school, and so I got tenure at like seven places and landed up going to the University of California at Los Angeles. And um, actually, my first two years there, I still didn't have to teach <laughs> because I brought a year of money from a postdoctoral fellowship I had, and then I got a Sloan Fellowship. So um, it, it was only when I was a few years into UCLA that I started teaching. Um, they were lucky. I was actually a good teacher. I won some teaching awards. but. Um, you know, they, 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 the way they hired me, they could have hired somebody who didn't know how to teach, which would have been a really bad thing. Um, I actually loved teaching and connecting with students. Um, you know, I, I landed up teaching a lot of relatively large um, undergraduate classes, like second year calculus and things like that with hundreds of students, um, because I, I liked um, connecting with large numbers of students who still hadn't figured out what they wanted to do with their lives. You know, I think you can have the most impact at that stage if you're a good teacher. You can also have impact by being a bad teacher. That wasn't the kind of impact that I wanted to, to have. Right. Um, so, and I continued to do my research. Um, so my, my PhD was in physics, but I became a professor of mathematics. And I really wanted to um, have more interdisciplinary interaction of mathematicians and physicists. And it was a little bit hard in a standard, um, standard university system because they have these departments which are rather siloed. I, I know that there are some centers at Wesleyan. Um, so Wesleyan was very early in, you know, Having centers and trying to do um, trying to do interdisciplinary work. When I first became a professor, which was 1987, um, there were not a lot of interdisciplinary centers at most universities, and I really wanted to to do this. So I was a little frustrated by it. I mean, I would do it in my research, but I couldn't kind of build it out on a large scale in the way I wanted to. Right. No. Absolutely. Uh... I feel the need to underscore how many layers of unusual you have here talking about, <laughs> you know, getting tenure right out of a postdoc, not having to teach right away, but then being good at it when you did. Those are all very unusual things in the sciences, but then being able to really jump into a lot of interdisciplinary work, as, as you say, is something that is really, I feel like only now becoming a trend. Yeah, there, there 
wasn't a lot of acceptance of it. I was really, so many people strongly discouraged me from it. They said, oh, you'll never get tenure. Right. In one department. So I did this unusual thing of just doing so much work in the postdoc that I could get to, and I got seven tenured offers, you know, some from math departments, some from physics departments. So, so much for that advice, you know? Right. And then in my research, when I applied for money from the National Science Foundation, they said, well, there's no discipline that really supports this kind of work. Okay, we'll give you money the first time, but don't ever come back to us because somebody else should be picking this up. So, yeah, there was. A lot of discouragement. Now things are much um, things are much easier for interdisciplinary work. At least the kinds of interdisciplinary that are now accepted. If mm-hmm. you are trying to, you know, um, to create new fields, <laughs> you'll still run into trouble. Right. right? Um, however, I think if you're really passionate about it, you should try to do it because I think if you're passionate, that how you do work that's good enough if you're passionate and work your tail off and I do work my tail off um, that's how you can really help to create um, new fields which is something that I feel that I've always been doing right right so you're at UCLA tell me about how your relationship with Microsoft got started okay well I was um, so uh I actually had been a classmate at Princeton of the guy who started Microsoft Research. So that was how my connection to Microsoft happened. But also, um, twice during my time at Wesleyan, I took a year as a member of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, which is a really cool place. And um, during that time, I learned that people in computer science were doing things that mathematically looked remarkably similar to what I was doing in mathematical physics, Hmm. which was a real surprise. In my freshman year at Wesleyan, I had taken one computer science class. It was okay, but I hadn't really loved it. At that time, there were cards, and you had to, like, carry your cards over to the machine and piled and everything. It was really, you know, it was really the Stone Ages. And, um, and you know, it didn't seem theoretical enough to, to interest me. So I had promptly forgotten about that. You know, that was like 1974, 75. And then here I am in, uh, I, I guess I was twice a member of the Institute, 94, 95, and again, 96, 97. And I was meeting these people who did computer science, and my God, they were doing the same math as I was doing. And they were looking at phase transitions. <laughs> you know, I heard some people were looking at phase transitions in computer science systems and the mathematics of it. And um, so I got really interested in that, and I started working on that. And I was one of the first people to start working on that. And um, and then uh, the guy who started Microsoft Research, Nathan Mirvold, um, who had been an early employee of Microsoft, uh, was on the board of directors of the Institute for Advanced Study, um, and there was a board of directors dinner, which I went to, and uh, and I told him I was thinking of leaving UCLA. Um, my second husband and I had a long-distance relationship. He was a professor in Leipzig, Germany, and I was a professor in Los Angeles. Ouch. The commute, was, you know, <laughs> the commute was getting to be a drag. Um 
here's another piece of career advice, probably exactly the opposite of what you would say. I'm probably saying everything that is not the standard route. But um, my, my husband and I, when we first got married, uh, you know, maybe a year into our marriage, he had a great position as a professor in Leipzig, and I had a great position at UCLA. Uh, we thought about getting jobs together, and we were actually offered a great job, what seemed like a great job together at the University of Michigan, our two positions plus another six positions to fill, but it wasn't what my husband Christian wanted in some fundamental way. And uh, we talked to a lot of people who said, well, of course you should take it, you'll be together, great school, what are you, crazy? And then we talked to serious two career couples who said, do not do something that is not very good for both of you. Mm -hmm. Because if you do, there will be some resentment and it will just fester. You've both worked your whole lives to get where you are and you shouldn't feel that you have to compromise it for the relationship. You will eventually find a way to be together. So instead of taking jobs one year into our marriage, you know, here we are three, three and a half years into our marriage of commuting from LA to Leipzig and we decided to look for jobs together and uh, when Nathan Mirvold heard this at this dinner at the IES in Princeton, he said, oh, well, you should come interview at Microsoft. And I was like, what? Are you crazy? I mean, I don't program. I don't do any of that. You don't have any real fundamental science. And, you know, I'm a mathematical physicist, and this doesn't make any sense. Um, and he said, no, no, I really, really want you to visit. And he just begged me to go and visit. Um, my husband was not able to visit at the same time because he – was in Leipzig teaching. And so I, now this is another piece of advice, just be open to things, you know. Um, so I went and I interviewed just, you know, for the heck of it. I mean, I was also talking to a lot of universities, which would have been the kind of thing I was comfortable with. And I went there and I just found it really interesting. I also really didn't want the job, so, so I didn't care, mm. really. Um, and so you know, people would say, what would it take to bring you here? And I guess maybe somebody else would have asked for a lot of stock options or something. <laughs> um, but I said, well, would you let me found an interdisciplinary group? And would you give me so many regular positions to fill? And would you give me so many visiting positions to fill? And, you know, I mean, I was just, I was being almost flippant about it. I mean, I was really asking for what I wanted, but I wasn't couching it in any way in anything because I just really thought there's no way I'm going there. And I also found very interesting people there, really interesting from so many diverse backgrounds because the technology industry was pretty young at that point. And so people hadn't come from technology or computer science backgrounds. And so I remember calling my husband, he was in Germany, and saying, I think I want to come here. And he said, what is the matter with you? Did they bribe you they offer you a lot of money and I said they we haven't talked money at all they didn't offer me any money and he said well why do you want to go there and I said because I think we could do something incredible um and so they made us this offer and you know here we both had tenure and he was a chaired professor in Germany and I was a full professor at UCLA which is a great school and uh here we were offered you know to give up tenure and go to a place that had no math no physics no theoretical computer science. They had people code, and I didn't even code, really. I mean, I had this class in 74, 75. Um, 
but I just decided to do it because I thought, you know, I'm always talking about these dreams I have and what I'm not getting the opportunity to do was to build interdisciplinary groups, right? Mm -hmm. I was not getting that opportunity from a standard university. And so why don't I just try it, you know? Um, And so we went and uh, people thought we were crazy. I mean, our colleagues from academia thought we were crazy. And we landed up building, I think, the best group on the boundary of math, physics, and theoretical computer science in the world. We hired a fields medalist, which is like the Nobel Prize of mathematics. Right. Um, we hired somebody as he was just winning the Wolf Prize in math, which is kind of the pre-Nobel Prize. Um, I mean, in many disciplines, the Wolf Prize is considered the pre-Nobel Prize. Um, and, you know, we had amazing work come out of our group. So we just, you know, we really ran with it. And I, I said, well, you know, one nice thing about not being known is that you're not ranked. Okay, so in academia, there's a lot of ranking mm-hmm. that goes on. So we're not ranked, you know, but not ranked doesn't mean you have to come in at 100. Not ranked means your first few hires rank you. <laughs> so I did really great first hires. <laughs> and so we got ranked very highly. And, um, and another thing we did was start a very um, wonderful postdoc program to bring in young people and give them the opportunity to work across fields. And, you know, now over the last 20 years, I've had about 200 postdocs and they're, you know, faculty at every top computer science department in the country, if not the world. Um, You know, and they brought to it very different experiences than if they had, you know, not done those postdocs and not interacted beyond their tiny fields. So, you know, there are all these great things that came out of it. I got bored after about a decade doing that, and I thought, oh, now I think that it is time for new fields to, you know, to form at the boundary of the social sciences, you know, economics, sociology, anthropology, and computer science. And um, so I wrote up this pitch, which went to Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, saying, you know, we can't just uh, have a great technology idea and then slap a business model on it later. We need to really integrate everything. We need to understand the economics of our marketplace and the um, social interactions of our customers before we start conceiving of a technology. And if you want to think of what is a research lab that would um, enable that, you need to have economists and social scientists together with computer scientists and mathematicians and physicists. And they bought it, and so I guess it's about nine years ago now. Um, we opened up a lab right next um, right next to MIT, which is, you know, one of the labs you mentioned mm-hmm. at the start of the program. And um, so in this lab, we've done a lot of very theoretical things at those boundaries. And then um, over time, we started to do a lot more quantitative stuff, the whole data science thing. And then five years ago, um, some great researchers were um, were being released on the market, in a sense, by Yahoo, which had made some very strange comments. The CEO had made strange comments about research, which 
spoke to his researchers. And so um, there was a group in New York City, a great group, and Google and Facebook and LinkedIn and eBay and Amazon and Microsoft and Columbia University and NYU went after a lot of the researchers in that lab and uh, there were 15 of them and I managed to hire 13 of them which became the start of Microsoft Research New York and um, we're just about to have our fifth anniversary soon the lab is more than doubled in size since then and it's a very cool lab at the boundary of machine learning AI and economics and the social sciences. So now I've got these two labs, and I've also got a small group in Israel, which I've been running for the last five years or so, um, that does some similar things as well. So, so, so it's cool. And, you know, and now I'm getting my five-year itch again, so we'll see what I do next. <laughs> <laughs> What was the reaction of your academic colleagues when you first made the move to Microsoft? And has that opinion changed over time with the success that you've had? Yeah, um, I, I remember I was at the Institute for Advanced Study that year, and um, I was in the math lounge. And No Go On is one of the leading combinatorialists in the world. Um, he's, he's in Israel normally. He walked in and he said, so have you decided where you're going? Because he knew that we had been talking to all these universities. And I said, yeah, we're going to Microsoft. And he said, you're doing what? <laughs> so we're going to Microsoft. And he said, but they don't have research and they don't have math and they don't have theoretical computer. What, are, are you crazy? And I said, I'm going to build a group in your field in combinatorics, which is going to be the best in the world. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Um, and three or four years later, he said to me and my husband, Christian, you have built the best group in the world in combinatorics. And we had. We really had. So, yes, the opinion definitely changed. Um, in terms of competition for postdocs, you know, nine times out of ten, someone gets an offer from MIT or the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton or CMU or Berkeley. They come to our lab instead of going there mm. for their because um, the people who've come out of our labs have just done so fantastically. I mean, it's also because they come in so fantastically. You know, I'm not saying it's all value-add, far from it. Um, but I, I, I think it's a very rich experience, and it's interesting, because I was a postdoc for four years when everybody advised me against being a postdoc for so long, and it was, for me, um, just an incredible time to expand my research horizon, to interact with different kinds of people, to kind of follow my crazy vision of what I might be able to build, and, um, and to work very hard. And so I really wanted to create this vibrant postdoctoral program where others could experience that before all of the um, responsibilities of being a young academic fall on them. And I think it, it really has done wonders for the people who've come through. I mean, I think they leave much broader than they come in, which is important because in your thesis you typically worked on one 
very particular topic. You are the world expert on that one little topic. And then you go and you become a professor and you have to, you know, and you have to apply for grants and you have to start going to faculty meetings and you have to start advising students, you have to start teaching, and it's just so much that sometimes someone will just become more and more and more of an expert in that one little area. And what I encourage our postdocs to do is really broaden before all of these responsibilities fall on you so that you can be open to many different things. That's great advice. Uh, your CV reveals that you've won a considerable number of awards throughout your career. Is there one that's particularly meaningful to you? Oh, God. Um, I guess there are, there are a couple. Um, so one is the John von Neumann Lecture Award, which is the highest honor of SIAM, the Society of Industrial and Applied Mathematicians. So that's like applied mathematics. That's their biggest award. And so that was super nice for me because I've always been so, you know, so interdisciplinary that I never felt I had an academic home. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I'll never win a really high award in any particular field because I'm just I'm always between fields. Mm -hmm. So for Siam to say, well, we think you have, you know, you have done what it takes to achieve the highest award in applied mathematics just was super gratifying to me. And I thought, wow, this is, this is such an open field that, you know, they don't just take somebody who is trained in applied math per se. Um, so that really meant a lot to me. And the, the other thing, I've won a lot of leadership-type awards, um, and, uh, and um, so uh, one, award, um, one, one award that I won about five years ago was um, the Anita Borg Institute Women of Vision Leadership Award. Uh, and that is, they, they call them um, ABBIES, A-B-I for Anita Borg Institute. <laughs> And um, first of all, very cool women have won this. Very, mm. very cool women. So you know, it's really gratifying to see what company I'm, I'm in. But um, also, it it just means so much. They put on the Grace Hopper uh, uh, Grace Hopper Celebration of Women in Computing uh, last fall. There were seventeen thousand five hundred people. Ninety five percent of them women at the Grace Hopper Celebration. Wow. You know, women in technology, okay? So just think about that. And they sold out almost immediately after opening it up. I mean, they could have probably, you know, filled up a place with 40,000. They just, you know, it's hard to find stadiums that big. Right. Um, so there are very few cities where they can hold this meeting anymore because there aren't venues large enough. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a great organization that gives um, support and encouragement to women in technology. And uh, so being kind of recognized as a role model by that organization was really meaningful to me. Um, there are a few women who saw me give the speech when I received that award and decided, okay, I'm going to be their mentors. Um, and were very persistent about it, even though they did different things than I did. 
so I, I just connected with so many people through that, and um, the Anita Borg Institute is such a wonderful organization, and this is, you know, uh, my my peers who who decided on this. So yeah, that's super meaningful. And if there are any women or men <laughs> um, who want to see an alternative universe in the tech world <laughs> who are listening to this podcast, you can go to the Grace Hopper Celebration. It's in the fall, and you know, you just um, there are amazing speakers, really amazing speakers, and panels, and energy like you've never seen. You know, so so I think um, I've taken a lot of women there for the first time, and uh, you know, and they say that they just keep this energy of you know, fifteen thousand women in their head whenever they're feeling lonely, like the only right. woman in the room, you know, they, they summon up that, that image. That's fantastic. Congratulations on all your accomplishments. Jennifer Tour Chase, class of 1978, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.